Good morning, Village Church. What one generation assumes, the second neglects, and the third rejects. What one generation assumes, the second neglects, the third rejects. Uh, As I taught through the life of David and the life of Solomon, as I've studied through scripture, there's been a profound, profound trend um, that very rarely is the faith of one man in scripture with purity passed on to the next generation. And after Abraham, let me just say it this way, I cannot find one example, there seems to be no stories in scripture where a man's faith makes it to the third generation intact. Now, Craig and I, we, we, we thought and we thought, and maybe you're going to be able to find somebody outside of Abraham whose faith has made it, impact to the th- made it intact to the third generation. But as we racked our brains, we were not able to come up with a single person in Scripture whose faith made it to their grandchildren. Isn't that scary? And even if you find one minuscule or minute person or maybe one person, they are the rarity. There's something very profoundly difficult about handing off the faith to the next generation. It's very difficult. Uh, I want to give you an illustration. Legacies, they are like flashlights and lasers. Godly legacies are like usually flashlights because if you notice with the flashlight, they're strongest at their source. And then what happens very quickly? They dissipate, right? They get broader, they get less focus. Flashlights dissipate over time. And this is honestly what godly legacies are like. Godly legacies are like flashlights. We assume just because we shine the light that it's going to give them enough light to get where they're going. And that is not the case. Uh, Sinful legacies are like lasers. Lasers are fundamentally different. Uh, Lasers are light, but their intensity lasts much longer and they can do far more damage. The light waves of a laser, they're all synchronized. They're all going in the same direction, which gives them greater longevity. And what you will find is that your sinful legacies, if they go unchecked, will pass on like lasers to the next generation. And the purity of that sinful legacy, if we could use that analogy, will carry on very easily. But on the other hand, our godly legacies oftentimes feel like flashlights. We radically put them out there. And flashlights, we'll call them normal light and laser light. They have a few differences. Number one, uh, they're all electromagnetic waves. You know what that is because you're all scientists, right? If I were to say, what is an electromagnetic wave? We'd all go, huh? We know that it's smart and people know what it is. But here's the point. A laser light, it's structured. It's very structure sets it up to behave with specific characteristics that give it unusual longevity and strength. Number two, normal light waves get dispersed and absorbed heavily. So when I flash a flashlight, every single time it touches any, any of you or any object in this room, it gets absorbed and it's dispersing in all different directions. A laser will bypass all of you and go, long distances and it's not getting absorbed or halted because of somebody else's presence. Lasers wavelengths are always parallel while the light always goes in various directions. Light starts at its source, it's very powerful, and then it just scatters in all different directions. Lasers take the same source of light and they focus it in one single direction in parallel wavelengths. You'll notice this that in the, the picture of the flashlight All of the wavelengths are going in different directions. There's different colors. There's different aspects to it. But the laser, everything goes in the same wavelength, in the same direction, in the same line, tightly together, and they feed off of each other. It's actually a powerful illustration. Normal light consists of all different kinds of colors. All different kinds of colors. Lasers, you'll notice, typically, they're going to be either green or 
red, right? Because it's monochromatic. It takes one color, one frequency, focuses it in one direction with extreme intensity, and over the long haul, this light can go for very, very long distances before it even begins to lose its intensity. That is what most sinful legacies are like. And somehow, as a church, we need to figure out how to make godly legacies like lasers. We need to figure out how to take this thing called the faith, and we need to figure out how to hand this off from generation to generation so that it does not disperse or get absorbed, but remains intense and powerful for generations to come. That is really hard. And what we learn in scripture is that there are going to be very few people who do this well because it is counterintuitive and counter sin nature inside of us. But I want you to hear me by the power of the spirit of God inside of you. Whether you are old or young, you do not need to be a flashlight when it comes to the faith. You can be a laser, and that's what I want to help you do in this sermon. We're in a series last week we started called Legacy. I want to define legacy for you. Um, Legacy is two things. Number one, legacy is the dominant narrative of your life. Uh, Legacy is the story of your life. It is the story, the thrust of your memorial service. It's the grand narrative that people tell about you after you're long gone and they sit at a table and it's Thanksgiving and they're remembering you. It's the stories they tell. What's scary is that whoever controls your narrative, whoever controls your story, controls your legacy. Uh, Number two, a legacy is the lasting impact of your life on another soul. Uh, A legacy is the lasting impact of your life on another soul. So even though there might be a narrative about you that is not maybe fully true or does not capture the heart of your legacy, your legacy can still continue in every single individual soul that you make an impact on. And so your legacy is a beautiful, fundamentally human thing. God has made it a human impulse and drive and desire for each one of us to care about the legacy that we hand off to the next generation. The younger you are, the less concerned you typically are about your legacy. But as you have children and as death looms, your concern for your legacy goes up exponentially as it should Because legacy is something that God has made you to care deeply about. Legacy has two ingredients in terms of building a legacy. Number one, it's intentionality. A great legacy will never happen on accident. If you are not intentionally choosing your legacy, you will not have a godly legacy that is like a laser that will last from generation to generation. Most people treat their legacies like flashlights. It's accidental. It's haphazard. It disperses generally in all different directions. And that we hope that maybe some beam or wavelength or electromagnetic wave or photon is going to land over there. We cross our fingers and we just hope we're like a shotgun rather than a sniper. And that's how most people's legacies function. What I want to say is be a shotgun, be a laser, be focused, be intentional, because that is where legacies are built. If you have never concerned yourself with your personal legacy and the generation coming after you, I, want, I just want you to hear me, you are likely a flashlight. You are likely a shotgun. And you will do much damage to the generations after you. The second aspect, the second ingredient of building a godly legacy is intentionality. I'm sorry, long-term obedience. Uh, great legacies are built over a lifetime. What you'll find is that many, many people, as they have spent the first two-thirds of their life living for God, Many people give up in the last third. 
they ride off the faithfulness and their good works and their reputation of the first two-thirds of their life. They go into retirement, and they sit back, and they say, let the young people do it. And I would contend your most effective and fruitful season of life, where your most powerful legacy can be left, is in the final third of your life, and especially how you die. There is no more valuable or important time for you in this room to redeem than the last third of your life and then how you die. So the moment that you get the cancer diagnosis and the moment that you get that news that there is a time clock on your life and there is an expiration date that now you know about or have closer categories, you now go into high alert because your legacy is being solidified in these final moments. So we get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, number 1, and you know it's a godly legacy is a struggle for the faith in others. A godly legacy is a struggle for the faith in others. Turn with me, 2 Timothy 4, and here's what we're going to find. This is Paul's last letter. There's no letters that Paul writes after this that we have access to. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is Paul's spiritual son. He is not his biological, physical son. He's his spiritual son, um, and Paul uh, poured his life into developing Timothy, who is a pastor. And Paul wanted Timothy to understand his legacy, and he wants to hand a very specific legacy off to Timothy in this book. Uh, Timothy was the closest thing that Paul could have had to his son. And for those of you um, who do not have children or you are single, and you hear me talking about the next generation, um, if you do have kids, that first and foremost applies to the kids in your home. But I want you to hear me that the Apostle Paul did not have children that we know of, and he was so effective in handing off his godly legacy. And so if you are single, do not let this at all deter you because we're talking about your spiritual children, your physical children, your spiritual grandchildren, and your physical grandchildren. But Paul wants to ensure that one specific part of his legacy is passed down like a laser beam from generation to generation, and it's called the faith. Now the faith, if I were to say to you, what is the Christian faith? Many people would be confused. And what I want to do is I want to give you vocabulary for what this means. And the reason you need vocabulary is because you need to pass down the faith with laser beam focus and clarity. You cannot give away that which you cannot articulate. And you must be able to articulate what is the Christian faith at its core. And I'm going to give you three things that you need to pass on to the next generation. You need to fight for. These will be a struggle. These will be intense. These will not be one-time conversations. These will be things that encapsulate the rest of your life from here on out, which is why most people don't leave a godly legacy, which is why the generation after them neglects the faith rather than picks up the mantle of faith and fights for it. Here's the first thing, the essentials, if you're going to pass on the faith. Number one is the authority of God's word. If you do not pass on the authority of God's word, hear me, no faith will make it to the next generation. Nothing. 
There's a whole move in Christian liberalism that wants to dismantle the authority of God's word and put cultural trends and trajectories as authoritative and make the Bible support these. Hear me, the moment culture and trends and ideologies and sexual ethics become your authority, the faith is gone. You want to talk about rejection? By the time you get to the second generation, you will get rejection. Not the third. The moment your lips and mind and heart touch liberalism, theological liberalism, count, count on it. Mark my words. Your children will not be Christians at all. It's just that simple. It's how it works. It's that dangerous. So number one is the authority of God's word. I want to, I want to share with you practically how this actually looks and why this is so relevant. Um, I want to tell you very simply why the generation of teens, 20s, and 30s are abandoning the authority of God's word in droves. It comes down to one thing. The Bible is irrelevant on sexual issues. Let me give you an illustration. Susie Q, she grows up in your home. You teach her about Jesus. You send her a wana. You pray with her every night. You teach her God's word. She goes to junior high. She goes to high school, and here's what she finds. She finds kids who are struggling with their gender identity and their sexual identity. And you might think, not my kids. Well, it's less than 1%, but let's hear me. If your kid knows 500 kids generally, he's going to know five kids who struggle with their gender or sexual identity. And those kids are usually a little bit more well-known than everyone else. They don't just slide behind the scenes, okay? And so your kid is going to know who they are, and they're going to become friends with them or at least become acquaintances with them. Sometimes your kids will actually become friends with them, which, by the way, is great, which is wonderful. You want your kids being friends with all different kinds of people so they can be a bright, shining light. But then here's what's going to happen. They're going to meet them, and they're going to say they're really nice. And then one day the friend's going to say to them, why would God make me like this? All I want is to be loved. All I want is to have a family. All I want, and these are good wants. These are drives and ambitions inside of this kid that are legitimate. And the culture is saying, yes, 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 there are no rules. There are no boundaries. Do whatever you want. Whatever your passions desire, go that direction. And then immediately this kid is, 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 is frustrated, is concerned, is confused. Well, I've got the Bible over here, but then i got this really nice person, and they deserve to be loved. And so then here's what we have. We have this kid who goes home, and then they open up Scripture. And here, let me just be really clear, okay? You may not get this. You may have heard all different kinds of things. You have to try so hard, so hard to make the Bible teach anything else other than, we'll say, clear subjects on gender and sexuality. You just, you just have to. It, it's not a confusing issue. The Bible is actually crystal clear. That, that's the hard part. If you ever met a first century Jew, none of them would say, oh, gender is not binary. You can definitely transition. It's a spectrum. No first century Jew would ever, ever say that. That's not even in their categories, okay? But that's how far off culturally the Bible is from 21st century Western secular culture, okay? So now Susie Q, high school, opens up the Bible, she looks at it, and it clearly teaches a first century Jewish ethic or a fourth century BC Jewish ethic that is conservative on sexuality. And then she looks at her friend, and then she looks at the Bible, and then she looks at her friend. And do you know who's pulling on her heartstrings? Her friend. And the culture is saying judgmental, bigoted, judgmental, bigoted. And he's saying love, 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 love. And you can watch, and this is always where it starts. When a young person sees the Bible's teachings on sexuality, gender, marriage, and life as irrelevant, not pragmatic, that is the first step through which all of the authority of Scripture in life is going to be abandoned. 
And that's where it starts. When you get down to almost every single person under 35 who is, who is abandoned the word of God and you follow their pattern, the, the issue of the Bible, sexuality, gender, life, and marriage is almost always central to it. And then the overflow of that is because the church doesn't share the culture's position. The church is now bigoted, judgmental, condemning, and shameful. And let's be honest, to some degree in some places, that's the absolute truth. So number one, if you don't hand off the authority of God's word, live it in your home, uh, you will not hand off the faith. Number two, the purity of the gospel. If your kids, if you, cannot articulate with clear vocabulary the gospel of Jesus Christ, hear me, it will not be handed down to your children or to your grandchildren. A requirement to pass off the faith to the next generation is the articulation of the essentials. And so when we talk about the gospel, this is literally the good news. It's just a churchy Christian word for good news. And the gospel, at its core, when you open up scripture, is a set of propositions that must be adhered to. It's also a story on one level, but if you cannot transfer the propositions from your mind through your mouth to their ears and into their heart, the faith will never be transmitted or transferred to the next generation. And there are a few essentials when it comes to the gospel. So here's an interesting like challenge in our membership classes and personally when I disciple people, I will ask them, what is the gospel? And the, the word confuses people, and I get it. I, you know, it may not be a word that you're used to hearing often. But then I'll ask them this question. What are the fundamental truths that someone needs to believe to be a Christian and to be saved? And the difficulty with which many people uh, try to come up with answers, it's concerning. And so what we prefer to do is every single week, once, twice, three, or ten times in a sermon is to share the gospel in different ways with you with the hope that eventually these things are going to rub off on you. And here are a few essential propositions that if you cannot articulate and hand these off, your children will not take your faith. God is holy. Perfect. You are a sinner who has sinned against God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus was perfect. Jesus died on the cross, and on the cross took my punishment for my sin on his body, soul, and emotions. That on the cross, there was a substitute. And that the forgiveness that Jesus gives is never acquired by being good, but by believing in Jesus. Because Jesus did the good works for us. On the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. Not optional, by the way. When you read scripture, the resurrection is an essential propositional truth that must be owned and believed for salvation to be genuine. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Those essentials, God is holy. I am a sinner. Jesus, God, man, died on the cross for my sins, rose again from the dead, and is coming back, and I am saved by belief and not good works. 
the purity, the simplicity, my four-year-old understands that. Now, does my four-year-old understand the substitutionary death of Christ to the same degree that we do in this room? No, but he doesn't need to. Do I understand it? Like some of you who have been walking with Jesus for 40 or 50 years, I can't even touch your personal knowledge and experience. These are truths that are simple, but their roots go, roots go deeper than we could ever imagine. But they can be transferred to four-year-olds and to three-year-olds and to 95-year-olds. If we cannot pass off and articulate the simple clarity and the purity of the gospel and not add crazy things to it, well, Christians don't drink. Christians wear, don't wear hats in church. That's not the purity of the gospel. Those are dumb rules that Pharisees put on things to muddy things up, okay? The purity, the simplicity of the gospel. You know why so many kids are frustrated with the faith of their parents? Because it's not the purity of the gospel. It's the gospel plus all of their traditions. And they make Jesus about their traditions. By the way, do you know who Jesus got really upset about when he did this? The Pharisees chewed them out for it. Because the generation who gets taught under that believes that they are made right with God by, by uh, acting on certain traditions rather than trusting in Jesus Christ and the purity of the gospel. Number three, the faith is the mission of the church. You can proclaim the authority of God's word. You can proclaim the purity of the gospel. And don't get me wrong, that will get people saved to a degree. But if you do not live out the mission of the church, your kids will not respect you and you will not have a faith legacy. If your kids believe in the authority of God's word and the purity of the gospel, hear me, they're going to find somebody else to model their life after to see the mission of the church. But may it be our mission to go and make disciples, that we would grow them, and that we would live courageously and overcome because everywhere we go, Jesus is with us. If you're not a disciple maker, the faith will not be handed off through you. You may give them two out of three. Somebody else will have to give them the third. Because the only way the faith is going to be transmitted like a laser instead of a flashlight is if you show your kids the authority of God's word lived out. And you proclaim to your kids with clarity and simplicity the purity of the gospel. And you show them the disciple-making mission of the church. These are the ingredients. And let me tell you, some of you are thinking, I haven't done half of that. I banked on my church telling the kids, but it didn't come from me. Well, then your church's legacy is going to live on through your kids, not yours. There's a fundamental difference here. What I love about legacy, and I want you to hear me on this, right? You can't undo what's been done. But I think God loves to take people in the last third of their life, put them through massive repentance, and God uses the repentance of those in the last third of their life in more powerful ways than you will ever imagine. There are few things more powerful than a grandma or a grandpa or a great-grandma and a great-grandma holding their kids, looking at their young ones, looking at their 30- or 40-year-old children and saying, I would like to tell you where I have sinned. And from this point on in my life, I want to do better. Nothing is more powerful than seeing an older person with humility own these things. It is life-changing. It will be an event that whether or not your kids take your faith or your grandkids, they will never forget that moment. They will never forget that moment, and it will speak powerfully to them. Now, you're probably thinking, get into the text, Michael. Okay, let's get into the text. Verse 1. That was like a whole sermon. Let's go home. All right. 
Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I charge you. This is urgent. Do you see this? That there's something about the looming nature of Paul's death that he feels like, oh no, I've got one last shot, Timothy. I'm going to Rome. They're going to execute me. Here are some of my final words. So he uses some of the strongest language. And I think here's what you find. As you get older, the strength of your language changes because the reality of your legacy looms right in front of you. This is make it or break it time. And Paul knows this is make it or break it time. He talks about the appearing of, of Jesus. The expectation is this for Paul. Like, I imagine Paul looks at Timothy. He says, he's going to come back at any moment. I don't know when, but this thing is urgent. So I need you to listen to me, okay? Uh, because if he comes back tomorrow, you've got one day. We don't have a lot of time right now, okay? So I, I am charging you by the impending nature that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes, that is the moment where judgment is going to be initiated. Like, there's no more second chances when he comes back. I want you to pass down the faith. Here, I want you to get this. Preach the word, he goes on. Preach the word. Do you see this? The authority of God's word. And I want you to watch the kind of authority that God's word should have in Timothy's life and in those who are Timothy's spiritual children. Be ready, Timothy, in season and out of season, when you're preaching and when you're not preaching, when you're in conversations, when you're at the hospital, when you're putting your kids to bed at night, When that moment comes up, redeem these moments in season, out of season. The word of God is to reprove and rebuke, but it's also not just negative, right? Because sometimes when our behavior doesn't line up with the word of God, we as parents and as shepherds, right? We have to reprove and rebuke. And what do we use to do this? The authority of God's word, because God's word stands in authority over every decision and desire in our life. And it judges them as good or bad or right or wrong. My discernment of my children's issues or sins is only as accurate as the word of God speaks to it. And so the word of God is the filter. It is the means by which I reprove and rebuke. But I exhort, I build up. This isn't just about stopping negative behavior. It's about finding the things that are good that God is doing in your kids and showing them by the word of God. This is good and right. Look at God's word and look what it says. And I love this. Any other parents and and, and pastors need this? With complete patience. (laughs) What? That's not convenient. (laughs) It even gives the person transmitting the legacy rules. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteous behavior that God desires. Anybody ever heard that? James is like onto something, right? Like, so here's an idea. When you yell, does that accomplish righteousness in your children? The answer is no, but what is intuitive to the instructor? Stop it. What are you doing? Why did you do that? Get over here, right? And it's interesting because we think our anger is going to solve the heart problem. No, it's behavior modification momentarily out of fear never deals with the issue, right? So he's like complete patience and teaching or instruction. Here's what that means. We don't just wait for the bad moments or the good moments. We are instructors. We are regular. We are intentional. We are disciplined. Grandmas and grandpas, your kids come over to your house. You open up God's word. Your grandkids come over and spend the night. You open up God's word. There are rules when you're at grandma and grandpa's house. It doesn't matter what kids do. When you're at our house, here's what we do. We pray. We open up scripture. We sit down. We talk about these things. We ask each other, how can I be praying for you? 
When you stay with us on a Sunday, we go to church. That's just what happens at grandma and grandpa's house. Why? Because we have to be laser beam focused and intentional because rarely will the next generation take the faith unless we do otherwise. Preach the word. Here's what I like to say. Um, Our kids spend all this time on TV. Let's say your kid spends an hour a day on TV. I like to think that the word of God is so powerful that five minutes of God's word counteracts a minute of culture's lies on TV. Um, I'd love to say that like your kids are going to spend as much time in God's word as they do watching TV. You and I both know that that is not going to happen unless you're an amazing parent and you have forbidden TV from your home, but um, that is not most of us. And so here's one of the things I just love to think. Every five minutes I spend in God's word with my children, not randomly, but intentionally, um, counteracts and dismantles an hour's lies of television. It's just a powerful thing. We underestimate the sheer power and authority of God's word. And if your kid has the Holy Spirit because they've trusted in Jesus, this just as powerfully increases. Paul's going to beg Timothy to transfer a pure gospel. Look at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. All right, pop quiz. Has that time come? Was, had the time come when Paul was teaching? The answer is, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's already there. Um, but, but what's interesting is, it's not that the people didn't have sound doctrine, I want you to notice this. In the text, they had it, but they rejected it. Um, and they're not enduring it. And I love this, that there is endurance required with sound doctrine. Have you ever noticed that sound doctrine is actually hard? Have you ever noticed it has a demand on your life? It has a demand on your time? It has a demand on your soul? And there are some people, there are going to be many people, who when they hear the truth, they, their soul does not have the ability to endure it. And it's most likely because they aren't actually saved. But you're going to find this. That there's going to be more and more people. They're not going to be able to endure this, the pressure and the demands of sound doctrine. But here's what they're going to do. They're going to have itching ears. Isn't that interesting? I hate when my ears itch. I just, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will accumulate multiple teachers to justify what they really want. And then here's, here's a one-liner. Everyone couldn't be this wrong, could they? Yes, they could. Go through history. They were all wrong about the world being flat. (laughs) They all couldn't be this wrong, could they? I mean, you just find yourself throughout history, and, and, and we are so foolish to think that we are the pinnacle of wisdom and that our culture has attained to knowledge that no generation after us will dismantle foolishness. We pour our entire lives into these cultural narratives, believing we are better than every single generation that has ever existed for thousands and thousands of years, for millennia. Meanwhile, there's going to come a generation after us that will dismantle us and will show the sheer foolishness of so much that we have believed as a culture. They will accumulate for themselves teachers. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And this is one of my favorite lines. They're going to wander into myths. My four-year-old, he lives off his passions and not intentionally. Let's be clear, okay? And the kid just wanders. La, 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 la. He's like, oh, there I am. Trouble. Sweet. Looks fun, you know? And uh, it's amazing what happens when your passions are in control instead of your mind directing your life according to the Word of God. Very different, right? 
the wandering person never ends up in the right place, okay? Have you ever blindfolded yourself, got in the car, and then landed at your work? No, like that's not how it works, right? But this is the nature of what happens because people are blinded, they're wandering, and even when somebody says, take the blindfold off, here's the direction you want to go, it's not convenient. It's not convenient. Because their passions are ultimately what is in control. This is one of the fundamental differences, by the way, between a Christian and a non-Christian. A Christian is, is driven by truth through their mind, and they have what's called self-control, the ability to say no to their passions and yes to the word of God. The non-Christian does not have that ability. They do not have that kind of self-control. They are driven much more carnally by their passions and their desires, and they are much more susceptible to lies because they don't have the firm word of God as truth to guide their path. They will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander into myths. I want you to catch this. Paul is not afraid to ask Timothy to be strange. Paul has been beaten. Paul is about to go to his death. And here's where I think one of the most dangerous scenarios is for right now, moms and dads who have young kids and teenagers in their home. You realize the cultural trajectory is not going well toward Christianity and those who adhere to the purity of the gospel, the authority of God's word and the mission of the church. You are aware of this. And you are afraid because mama bear and papa bear instinct, right? You want to preserve your children's bodies. You want to preserve their egos. You want them to get participation in what you want. Everything needs to be perfect, right? You want them to have no pain and no heartache and no sadness. And so you insulate them from all this stuff. And if you're not careful, you will insulate your children from the difficulty that God has ordained for them. This is part of what it means to be a Christian in every culture. And let me just, let me just be clear with you. All over the world, And I mean today, children, boys, girls, men, and women are being executed because they believe in Jesus. And moms and dads are giving over their children to be executed because they believe in God's word and the mission of the church and the purity of the gospel. You all have it easy. But there's an American cultural trend that is consuming Christian evangelical parents. We couldn't dare let them go on a mission trip because what if they get hurt? Really? That's where we're at right now? Teach your kids to be brave. Teach your kids to risk. Teach them to do hard things because they will never do any damage for anybody if they're not doing hard things now. If they don't know how to deal with a little bit of hurt and pain, how are they going to deal with the reality of culture and life? Probably shouldn't say this, but we were at a spelling bee this last week and uh, my daughter made it to the Christian spelling bee thing, all these schools send one kid per class, they did a spelling bee. And so um, there's like 25 kids from all these different schools, or like the top of their class. And, and we're like, yeah, way to go, you know. And, and my biggest win for her is that she's going to get in front of uh, about 50 or 60 people and she's going to speak. Like for me, I'm like, way to do a hard thing, social anxiety, all that other stuff. So kids are slowly getting out, right? And I, I'm talking wailing. A kid gets out wailing. They lost, right? Um, they get on the fifth round, the sixth round, cry, tears, tears. And I get the tears. Don't get me wrong. Can I just tell you this? I get it. I get the tears. I get that you've worked hard and you've studied. I get the letdown. But there's two kinds of tears. There were like, I'm disappointed tears. And then there were, I don't think I've ever felt pain before in my life, kind of wailing and anguish. In fact, we got in the car and my, my daughter asked, what does the word sobbing mean? And we said, remember that girl in the hallway? That was sobbing, okay? Remember everybody else? That was crying, okay? 
And I thought to my, Brianne actually said, she's like, what are we doing to this next generation that they can't even lose without sobbing? And these are Christian kids in the church. And I was like, that, you know what? We're building a generation of wimps who can't endure suffering, who can't endure a little bit of heartache. So what if they make fun of you? Grow up back. Now I get this, but this starts in the home. This starts in the home. This starts young. This starts preparing them and reading them scriptures like Paul getting ready to die, saying, endure, Timothy. This is going to be hard. In fact, count it an honor. Now, we think that's crazy. Now, here's the reality is most parents, right, right now, if you're not used to this, you think I'm insane. You're like, really? You want me to teach my kid to endure pain and hardship? Do you want them to succeed at life? (laughs) Forget about that. Do you want them to succeed at passing off the faith to the next generation? They must learn to suffer well. Now, am I advocating inflicting pain on your children? Please say no. The world does it for you. What I'm advocating is shepherding them through it. What I'm advocating is teaching them how to be courageous. We are conduits of the faith. Conduits only work if the substance passes through it. We're not just receivers, we're conduits. For a receiver, you get it and it stops with you and you use it all up. It's not like a gift card, right? Somebody gives you a $100 gift card to Starbucks and you use it all and consume it and it's gone. You are a conduit. The material passes, the substance passes through you and its intention is to pass on to the next generation. And if the conduit gets clogged and it doesn't pass through, is the conduit doing its job? And the answer is, of course, no. So what, moms and dads? Your homes, your homes are like mini churches. And you guys are the shepherds. And your job in your home with your mini church is to uphold the authority of God's word, the purity of, God, of the gospel, and the mission of the church, so help you God. And it will not be easy because sin will mo- makes us want to be lazy. Can I get an amen from anybody who's ever raised a kid? I mean, it's easier just to say, go watch TV for a while, I need a break, I'm gonna take a nap, right? That's easy. And sometimes those things are okay, right? But by and large, if we will pass on the faith, it will happen because of intentionality over the long term. Singles. You might be thinking, this isn't for me. It is for you. It's totally for you. Paul was single. Timothy was not his biological son. You need to find spiritual children and pour your life into them and hand off the faith to the next generation. And if you're like, what's the faith? The authority of God's word, the purity of the gospel, and the mission of the church. You take these things and you hand them to the next generation. You find kids whose moms and dads aren't believers who are largely negligent and they trusted in Christ and you take them under your wing and you show them the beauty and the compelling nature of the faith. And then here's what we have. I think with kids, students, you might be an adult. You do not inherit faith. You don't inherit it. Just because your mom and dad and grandma and grandpa were missionaries and awesome and loved Jesus means nothing for you if you don't personally trust in Jesus. The faith must be personally owned from generation to generation. So not only do I have to hand off the faith, but that faith needs to be owned and they can only be conduits if they own it. They can only be conduits if they own it. So if you personally owned the faith. Finally, we get to number two in your notes. A godly legacy is a struggle for the faith in me. It's for you, Timothy. Always be sober-minded. You know this is in contrast to being driven by the passions of the world. They're driven by passions. You're driven by clear-headedness. Endure suffering. Timothy, look at my life. This is not going to be easy. 
but it's worth it. Do the work of an evangelist. I love, the, I love this line because it's almost like Timothy's not an evangelist, but he's like, but it's still the mission of the church. So do the mission of the church. Well, I'm not an evangelist. It's not easy. Figure it out. Make disciples. Figure out how to strategically share the gospel with people in your life. He says, fulfill your ministry. Do your job. God has made you and he has called you to be a conduit, to be a laser beam, to be a sniper, to take this thing called the faith, the authority of God's word, the purity of the gospel, the mission of the church, and to give it away to the next generation. And then he draws attention to his life. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. This is Old Testament sacrificial language. Wine would be poured into the fire, onto the fire where the sacrifice was being made to God, an animal sacrifice. And it made a sweet-smelling aroma. And it drew attention to the animal being sacrificed. It's interesting the grammatical structure is passive, which means Paul's not doing the pouring. God is. And the water, the wine, if you will, the drink offering, is Paul's life. And the sacrifice is Jesus. And God is taking Paul's life as a drink offering, and he is pouring it over Jesus. And it makes a sweet-smelling aroma, and it draws people's attention not to the drink offering, but to the sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? The interesting thing is, the drink offering is burned up. And what he's saying is, you want to talk about hardship? I am about to be poured over the fire, and the, the reason God is doing this to me is because he wants to draw attention to Jesus, which is why in one verse earlier he can say, endure suffering. Because as you endure suffering, your drink offering, your life is poured out, and a sweet-smelling aroma pops up, and people say, look at the sacrifice. Since the time of my departure has come, meaning I'm going to Rome, I'm going to die, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. What does he say? I have kept the what? I've kept the faith. I have kept the authority of God's word, the purity of the gospel, and the mission of the church. Timothy, go and do likewise. This is your job. This is what God's made you to do. So I want to take a moment I want to pray. We're going to celebrate communion here in a moment. And uh, some of you have made massive mistakes in your life. Um, Some of you have shipwrecked. Some of you are in a multi-decade process of rebellion. And you know that God is intervening and asking you to about face, asking you to go in a whole new direction with your life. And what I love about God is that legacies are established in these massive turning arounds, these massive moments of repentance, these about faces. The older you get, I want you to hear me, the harder that is to do. This is human nature, by the way, right? The older we get, the harder it is to say, I'm sorry. Anybody else experience that, right? Which is why the older you are, the greater the level of repentance, the more beautiful it is to watch and the more unforgettable it is to those who receive it. Some of you are young and you are on the front end of your life. Death does not loom. You do not have children. This feels far off. And I just want to look at you and say, I charge you in the presence of God and by his appearing in the kingdom of God, preach the word, live under its authority, 
protect the gospel, the purity of the gospel now in your heart and your life and fulfill the mission of the church, be about making disciples. You cannot wait because the culture is coming like a vacuum and it wants to suck you in. And if you are not prepared, you will not be able to withstand its power unless you are in the faith. May we be like Paul. May we get to the very end. May we not shipwreck and say, I have kept the faith. Remember, Paul murdered Christians. Paul failed miserably. We never speak about that part of his life when we talk about his faith legacy. We talk about the last third of his life. Let's pray. Father, your word is so encouraging because at moments, sometimes I know we just wonder, is it too late to make all this right? And God, I know that we cannot undo the past. We cannot change the future. But right now, God, we can make decisions that build legacy. Not for our sake, Lord. May we be drink offerings that are poured over the sacrifice of Jesus. May we be sweet-smelling aromas that draw people's attention to the sacrifice. Father, for those who are struggling, even with the idea of gathering their grandkids or their kids their neighbors, their friends, their cousins, and saying, I was wrong. Would you give them profound, supernatural courage? And may you use and mark these moments of humility and repentance in their life as the beginning of a legacy that will be handed down from generation to generation. Lord, we pray for the many people in our life that we desire so deeply to trust in Jesus, to hand this faith And God, um, nobody hands off the faith perfectly, but God, some of us are just so burdened for our kids and grandkids and our neighbors and our cousins and our nieces and our nephews. And so God, would you teach us to pray regularly? Would you teach us to pray um, fervently? Would you teach us to pray intentionally for their salvation? And God, if you would be so gracious, would you use us to help them believe in Jesus? God, we love you. It is an absolute joy to be your kids that every failure of mine was covered on the cross. Every lack of intentionality, every lack of redeeming my moments, every lack of protecting my children, you have 100% forgiven, so there's no condemnation between me and you. And God, I know I speak for so many people in this room when I say thank you. We are filled with gratitude. Lord, we love you. And we pray all this and we worship you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.